1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Normally, Kobus van Staden is with me, but unfortunately, he got called away at the last minute for a work-related meeting. So we couldn't reschedule with our guests. So we're plowing along. It'll be just me this week, but I have an amazing guest for you. So you will not be disappointed in the least. Today, we're going to be talking about the China economy and how it impacts Africa. Now, one of the most interesting things that you can look at is the value of the RAND. And that's the South African currency. And you can kind of track the RANDs up and down based on what happens all the way over here in China. So if there's a good piece of economic data in China, the RAND goes up. If there's a bad piece of economic data, boy, the sell-off just goes and the, the RAND goes down. More and more African currencies are feeling that impact. And if it's even maybe not on a currency but on an economy, in part because so many African economies now have their largest trading partner with China. And so they are interdependent with one another. And that's why I think it's going to be so important to be able to understand what's happening here in China economically, because there is a lot going on here. And there's always been this concern that as the United States and China intensify their squabble over trade and in many other aspects of their relationship, that Africa may become the collateral damage in this relationship. Yet there's a contrarian view to that, which says that as China starts to decouple itself from the United States, it will turn more to regions like Africa and invest more and do more trade. So we're going to get an insight from Jeremy Stevens, who is an economist at uh, standard advisory china which is part of standard bank he's been based in beijing for almost a decade where he conducts research on the chinese economy and financial markets jeremy welcome to the show thank you very much for staying up late for us in beijing
2: no thanks for thanks for having me really i'm delighted to be part of the show and it's a pity Kubis isn't with us but i'm sure in your great hands I know. Uh, you know, we'll be able well, to cover some interesting stuff. I, I, I will do stuff. my
1: best you know, to carry the show without him. It doesn't happen very often, so. but nonetheless, uh, before we get started, let me just kind of introduce everybody to what you do at Standard Bank and a little bit about Standard Bank so we know kind of where you're coming from. Uh, your job is basically to explain what's happening in the Chinese economy, uh, mostly to funds and corporations who are your clients, but also to various stakeholders inside Standard Bank. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Standard Bank, it's Africa's biggest lender by assets and it's based in Johannesburg. But back in 2012, uh, a very important deal was made between China's Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, which took a 20 percent stake in Standard Bank. So there's this interesting China-Africa relationship even within your bank. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, And part of what you do now with this ICBC relationship is to help guide ICBC into some opportunities and to explain – a lot of the different risks that are entailed with investing in Africa. So so that's actually fascinating. I really admire you because I think you have one of the best jobs in the China-Africa space. And so I'm a little bit envious that you get to do this all day for a living. So, To be uh,
2: honest, I am quite lucky. Uh, but... You are right. So we work very closely with ICBC, who own 20% of us. And when they made that investment, it was actually the biggest ever Chinese outbound investment into anywhere in the world. So it's an incredibly significant um, investment for China, not just for China, Africa. And what we have here is we have a sort of rep office, uh, Standard Advisory China, that's about 35 people. And basically, they are tasked with um, working with ICBC to bring African opportunities to the ICBC and ICBC's client base. But then we also work closely with Exim Bank and CDB and SinoSure in terms of bringing opportunities to bankability and then getting them off the ground in Africa, and we work closely then uh, with our teams in Africa and we're in 21 African countries and so I sit writing about China for our clients uh, outside of China and then inside China I spend a lot of time talking about Africa's macro uh, structural themes and, and cyclical dynamics so very very cool job i very lucky and the fact that I've been able to be here for almost 10 years is very lucky and now I have a little uh, child here and so you know I hope to stay here for 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 many many years.
1: Fantastic. Well, and just for the people who are not also familiar with ICBC, because it's not a a brand like J.P. Morgan or or one of these other big banks, the famous banks, uh, but it is the number one bank in the world, the largest bank in the world with four trillion dollars in assets. I mean, that just that blows me away every time I see it. It is crazy. It's huge. Um, let's talk about the. It's Chinese worth starting right there, now. though,
2: because because for yeah. for, for ICBC, um, and one of the things that you find is, and this is why I think that understanding the Chinese economy. Uh, for its own sake is really important because a lot of the events that happen inside the Chinese economy do manifest themselves in Africa and you need to understand what's happening in China and, you know, an example is ICBC, like you say, $4 trillion in assets, I think it's $1 trillion that's up- offshore but a very small fraction of that's in Africa. Um, you know, Africa's, a-, Africa's a, s- a sort of small sliver of interest in the financial community inside China um, but what happens in China has significant ramifications for African economies. And so often when we talk about China-Africa, we kind of talk about it like, like those opportunities or those forces are ring-fenced from what's happening in the domestic economy. And I'd make the case today that increasingly, uh, actually what's happening inside China matters considerably for how they engage uh, with Africa and how that manifests in various African countries. And what bothers me is that sometimes China's economy is kind of grossly misunderstood by the policymakers in Africa and the decision makers in Africa. And But these ongoing changes matter a lot. I mean, the fact that you're close to fix, uh, peak fixed asset investment in China, the fact that the economy slowed from 12% growth to 6% growth and continuing to slow down the fact that you know raw materials the pricing that was being pushed by china uh you know five years ago was on the demand side and now it's increasingly on the supply side where they're cutting um capacity in various commodities and that's keeping prices elevated um, the impact of one belt one road um, and the impact of Made in China 2025 and the trade war, because that's where I mean I can tell you for sure, Exim Bank, for example, and CDB, they are spending almost all their time thinking of ways to dedicate finance to Obal and to Made in China 2025. What does that mean for Africa? Um, you know de-risking in the financial system which has been ongoing for the last two and a half years in China where they've made it tremendous traction. What that's done is that's meant that the financial institutions themselves, how they allocate capital is changing, how they're making those decisions. They're becoming far more um, uh, risk averse, far more aware of of the, the likelihood of defaults. Um, And they know that, you know, if they lend money somewhere in a year's time, they're on the hook for making sure that that money comes back into the balance sheet. And so what does that mean for checkbook diplomacy? Um, So a lot of the things that are playing out inside China really, really do matter um, tremendously uh, for our African economies.
1: So that is a lot to take in. And so when you talked about the CDB and that's the China Development Bank, um, so Let's kind of step back and and kind of take a couple of points on that list that you just gave about some of the key things that matter most to Africa. When most people are thinking about China today, particularly this year, people are talking about the loans and the debt. Now, what you're talking about is, okay. that's certainly very important in Africa. But at the same time, what's happening here in China is also very important. So let's talk about the the slowing economy. There was a report that came out this week uh, by... Noted Chinese economist uh, from GF Securities, which is a brokerage house here, uh, Shen Mingao, and he is su- suggesting that next year, due to the ongoing US China trade war, that growth in China will fall below 6%. Talk to us a little bit about if Chinese economic growth falls below that psychologically important barrier of 6%, what does the impact on China Africa trade and China Africa relations?
2: Well, First and foremost, I, I do think that um, growth ebbing to to below 6% in, you know, one of the quarters in Q1 or Q2 is totally possible. Um, and the fact that that's the new psychological barrier is, is kind of interesting but it's kind of neither here nor there i mean the reality is what's happened you know i came here in you know 2011 and growth was in double digits it was 12 percent growth and i'd go see clients saying you know things are going to slow down in china and people were talking about a hard landing of nine percent and then it became eight percent and now we're down to six and a half percent and the trend is clear um chinese economy is very big it's increasingly becoming too difficult for the chinese authorities to continue to grow the economy at the pace that it's been growing its policy levers have diminished considerably we're reaching a situation where we at peak fixed asset investment uh, and the property sector is 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 probably topping out can, can i
1: can i can i stop you there just because i think we have an audience who are largely not economists or familiar with some of the terms that you're using so when you talk you've mentioned twice now about peaked fixed asset investment, what does that mean and what's the connection with with Africa per se?
2: It's it's incredibly important um, for Africa. So um, China builds a lot of stuff every year, um, you know, five years ago it was growing at 30% a year. And what fixed asset investment is, 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 is think of it as roads, bridges, ports, and so on, uh, the, the the things that underpin economic activity that uh, China's been building for some time in the sort of spirit of, you know, build and, and, and demand will come later. Um, now, one of the problems for China is that you, you've kind of had a situation where land, labor and capital have been somewhat mispriced and you've had incentive structures in the economy that have encouraged fast growth and the easiest way to grow the economy quickly, uh, especially in various provinces at the local lov- government level, has been to build stuff, because that straight away becomes economic activity and GDP. So they've built a tremendous amount of stuff, and it's trillions of dollars every year that they're building. And if you look at the growth rates of that, so five years ago, it was growing at 30 percent, you know, the next year, 25 percent, the next year, 20 percent, the next year, 20%, the next year you know, 15%, and it's slowly gotten slower and slower, and now it's growing at about 6%. And the reality is that at some point China has to stop building so much stuff and that the growth rate... Um, because it's such a big share of the economy, I think it's about 50% of GDP or maybe a little bit more is fixed asset investment. Um, obviously, if that starts to flatline, so it has zero growth, which we're close to, um, then the economy's overall economic activity has to go much, much slower. And China realizes that that old playbook of supporting growth, so whenever the economy slowed down, what China's authorities would do was it would tell the banks to start lending, they would lend to SOEs, those SOEs would build stuff, and that was always the way that they they managed to keep growth relatively lofty. And they realize now that that old playbook is dead, and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to support uh private businesses who are more market orientated, who are more externalized, who are more involved in manufacturing, and they're trying to support consumption, because those two pillars are the pillars of future China's economic activity. Now, does
1: that explain then if these companies that were building trillions of dollars of fixed assets, those roads, bridges, all the amazing infrastructure that we have here, so their market at home is slowing? Do they then look to Africa and say, or to South America, or South Asia, this is all the points along the Belt and Road, and say, you know what, if we can't build at home, can we start building abroad? And then we bring in people like ICBC and other banks to say, finance this, give loans to Djibouti or to Kenya or to South Africa to build stuff. We will then build it. And some of that interest gets paid back to China, but also these companies that were built to build stuff here in China, now are employing people to build overseas. Is that kind of the equation or am I, am I stretching it out too far?
2: No, no, for me, that's exactly what One Belt and One Road is. It's, um, what they've done is they've seen what's worked in Africa. Um, policy banks have supported um, fixed asset investment and infrastructure development in Africa, and they, they're trying to make that model replicated across Asia. Um, and, and that has a political dynamic because obviously it, 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 um, it, you know, the idea is to return China to its hegemonic position in Asia. Um, it is where China has a tremendous competitive advantage. It's probably the best in the world at building uh, relatively decent priced um, uh, infrastructure projects. Um, and so it helps it also export um, the equipment and the capsule equipment and the vehicles that are attached to those infrastructure projects. And so if if I look at One Belt, One Road, it's precisely that and it's basically what China's done in Africa but on steroids in Asia. Um, and so uh, for me, the, the implication of One Belt, One Road and, and how Africa falls down the pecking order uh, for Chinese SOEs and companies that are looking to build roads, bridges and ports, whereas previously they may have been prioritizing Africa, I think that they're all going to prioritize uh, the A- the Asian neighborhood. Um, and I've sat with clients, I-, I won't name them, but I've sat with big Chinese SOEs and they've spoken to me for an hour about what they plan to do in Africa and I've said, but you... Uh, you know, I've interrupted them at some point and said, but you haven't mentioned One Belt, One Road. And they've replied to me very frankly saying, well, Africa's not really part of One Belt, One Road. And the ICBC chairman did a speech, uh, uh, sorry, an interview with uh, CCTV. And I saw my friend posted, uh, the person who did the interview posted the the pictures on on her WeChat. And I said, oh, uh, did he did he mention Africa? And she said he mentioned Africa once, and that was Egypt. And so... It's, it's, it's much more African people who think we're part of One Belt, One Road. And my contention is that or uh, where I take umbrage is I'm not so convinced that Africa's in One Belt, One Road per se. Then I think, well, well the sorry, continent
1: is not in One Belt, One Road, but certain I think Kenya is part of it. Djibouti's is part of it. Egypt certainly is part of it. I think Senegal was now brought into it, which seems completely random to me to have
2: the, the, a country, the, yeah. that's, that's the point, Eric. The, the red herring is trying to be part of One Belt, One Road. All it is is it's, you know, why is Senegal part of One Belt, One Road? I mean, wh- wh- why would South Africa be part of One Belt, One Road? Why, if Angola says, well, we want to be part of One Belt, One Road because... You know, the raw materials that you pull out of the ground are part of what... I mean, I feel like that's a total red herring. The reality is that what China wants from Africa, where they will get funding from CDB and from Exxon, who are the same players in One Belt One Road, will be if you develop innovative funding solutions, if you have projects that are bankable, if you have projects that are going to unlock economic potential, that are integrated regionally, if risks have been managed properly then China's going to continue to fund projects in Africa. But wanting to be part of One Belt, One Road is really neither here nor there. Furthermore, there was a a Chinese leader today who said they're rethinking China's global infrastructure plans. They're aware that many of the projects have been poorly executed and it hurts China's reputation. And the, the authorities are going to step up scrutiny around Belt and Road projects. I mean, this hasn't been a clear win for the Chinese authorities. Now,
1: no, exactly, it hasn't been a clear win, and I think there's a growing sense now, particularly here in Asia, that it is uh, it's failing in many respects. Because there's been a pushback by Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir. There's certainly being a pushback in Oceania. A lot of people, and in Asia, is a, a different case because of the hegemonic tradition of china in this part of the world that people are apprehensive about it but at the same time i think asia in many ways is taking the lead to rally against belt and road and to push back on the chinese that others may follow Uh, people are worried in africa the debt issue will not go away and and i think the chinese are fumbling through a response they are notoriously terrible communicators about these things they don't engage civil society. They don't engage with, uh, you know, with, with other stakeholders beyond political elites. And that makes them a piñata for all the critics. And, and it's really in some ways it's unfortunate because I do think that they absorb – more blows than they necessarily need to but at the same time i think you know they deserve it if they can't communicate what they're doing and what they're trying to do but um they got to change something because the mood is really shifting very very quickly against chinese investment in these, in these infrastructure projects not just in africa but around the world
2: well this i mean China's soft power and the fact that it definitely needs friends. I mean, I think China also underestimates how few friends it has in Washington.
1: They can't possibly ha- believe they have any friends in Washington. Well, there they is. do. I they, mean, they think Henry a-
2: Kissinger is their friend, and they think Michael yeah, but Bloomberg's Henry Kissinger. I mean,
1: I know, but these guys are all out of power. They have no friends who have any influence. You know, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago, and and I just went around the world and said they're having problems everywhere right now in terms of friends, and, and, and they don't really have that many friends. They have interests, they have mutual interests, but they don't always have friends. And that's a troubling spot for them to be in because their soft power is, in fact, as you pointed out, uh, quite feeble. And they need the soft power in order to drive this bigger agenda through if, in fact, that's what they want. And I want to get your take on one thing in particular about the question of the debt. and And this is something that Non-economists like me have been speculating on, but I would like to get a, a, a real professional view on this. People have been using the port in Habantota in Sri Lanka as an example of what may happen if... A country defaults on the infrastructure loans. So, if you recall, and we had a show on this a couple months ago, the Chinese loaned a billion dollars, about 1.2 billion dollars, to the Sri Lankans to build this port. Turns out that that port was actually part of a much broader corruption uh, problem that was with the Sri Lankan prime minister, and so it, there was there was a lot to that story. It was a terrible idea from the start. That being said, it is the poster child for what can happen to a country if they can't pay the debt. So a lot of people in in Africa in particular are concerned that if they fall behind on that debt, China is going to start taking the port of Mombasa, they're going to take the port of Djibouti, they're going to start taking key natural resource assets in Angola and so on and so on. From your understanding of how the Chinese manage debt, how Banks like the policy banks, like the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank, and how they work—is this part of their their modus operandi? Is this what they do? They give you money. If you don't pay it back, they confiscate collateral. Is that how they do it?
2: I don't know. I mean, I I think that it's it's too it's too difficult to generalize. Um, I, I've noticed that a number of your guests in the recent past have been talking about. How China Africa relations have kind of reached some kind of inflection point and I totally agree I th- I think that there is a maturation of the relationship which is ongoing. I think that the commercialization of decisions is increasing and that'll continue to be ongoing and I do think that there's an end in this checkbook diplomacy. I don't think that I don't think that the authorities can be pushing aggressively domestically for financial institutions whether they're policy banks like CDB or EXIM or whether they're commercial banks like ICBC or CCB I don't think that they can be pushing them aggressively to make sure that how they allocate capital changes to become more um, to recognise better risk and opportunity. Um And people are losing their jobs for making bad decisions from two years ago, a year ago, three years ago. And I think that that will increasingly happen. And I think... A number of the small rural banks, there's about 1,114 of them. Um, relatively small, they're about 13% of bank assets, but right now their MPL ratios, because they've been told to real to acknowledge anything above 90 days, I think their non-performer loan ratio is about 8%. They're in incredibly difficult funding situations, and I think that there are going to be bankruptcies, there are going to be difficulties in these creative... Um, creative destruction going through the system domestically. As a result, the decisions for how they lend money offshore has to change as well. Um, But one thing that struck struck me about your question is, you know, when I was in Angola, one of the things that we were told uh, by the Angolans there was that, uh, you know, in 2008, when everybody left because Angola couldn't repay their debts, the Chinese stayed. And that was the Angolans telling me that. And Odebrecht had left, et cetera, et cetera, and the Chinese decided to stay, and that was a strategic decision because they wanted to make sure that that friendship and that soft power remained. So it is a case-by-case kind of thing. What happens in Sri Lanka won't happen in Kenya, but what happens in Kenya won't happen in South Africa. What happens in South Africa won't happen in Angola. Um, It's a very, you know, and you had a guest, uh, was it, was it, Two, two, two podcasts ago talking about what it was happening in Kenya. Um, you know, these are all case-by-case case kinds of things that um, I think you can't make blanket statements about what China will do and I don't think you can make blanket statements about such a diverse continent, which is Africa as well. So it's complicated, I'm not sure, but I would definitely make the case that th- there's a commercial, a much more commercial, much less patient much more, uh, I think that FOCAC uh, now this year, there was a a kind of expectation, like this time Africa must come with plans. And I don't think that happened. And I think next year, China-Africa ties will be on the back burner for the Chinese administration, for the leaders uh, as they deal with other things.
0: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars.
1: It's interesting to hear that you're saying that the domestic problems that Chinese banks are starting to face with the slowing economy will also affect the lending that goes to Africa. Now, that may actually be a good thing because people are concerned on the continent that there's too much Chinese money coming in and maybe slowing down for a time, letting some of these loans digest, seeing if they are actually sustainable, uh, might be not the worst thing in the world. Uh, We talked a couple – we talked in our last show about – the Djibouti, uh, the Addis Ababa-Djibouti railway, and the second uh, phase of the standard gauge railway, and just letting some of these projects actually mature, seeing if they're financially viable and sustainable, might be might be actually be a good thing. But as we pointed out last week as well in our show, uh, Chinese insurance companies and Chinese banks are starting to write off some pretty big losses in Africa, and there's doesn't seem to be a huge appetite. Uh, in beijing to to tolerate that, so maybe uh we will see a sharp drop off in in financial activity with Africa. do you think that's also going to happen on the trade front so that's on the the loan and investment side what do you what are you seeing in terms of china africa trade
2: so b- before the trade i mean if you if you think about what was announced at focac um this year, it was a lot about they understood that debt was a problem they understood that uh, um that uh, they need to import more and they understand that they need to support SME development and manufacturing in Africa. So they understand what the hotspots are, which speaks to this idea that they are reactive to uh, what what's needed on the ground and, and they care about the soft power and the influence they have in Africa. But you also see that... You know, they the headline figure was sixty billion, which was the same as the sixty billion the time before. But ten billion of that was supposedly for FDI, which would happen anyway. I mean, generally speaking, FDI from China into Africa is about three billion a year. So they included that for the first time, as if that's something that they have a control over. And then the priorities were SME and import and manufacturing. So clearly, they they're trying to they're trying to proactively engage Africa in a way that recognizes and ameliorates the tensions that are emerging. Um, if you look at, if now when you go into trade, so you're right, I mean, there's, there's three massive pieces of the China-Africa story, and it's incredibly nuanced, which is not necessarily my forte, uh, far more your, your forte, but trade is about 200 billion, you've got concessional lending and loans, which is about 130, 120 billion, And then you've got fdi which is about 30 35 billion so those are the pieces of the puzzle in a macro sense now um i looked at the export numbers and import numbers today and uh, you know the reality is china africa trade peaked in 2014 and then 2015 and 16 were relatively bad years it was you know it was contracting and then 2017 we saw a pickup again and this year china africa trade's probably going to be about 200 billion um, so getting very close to the the, the 2014 uh, peak level. But if you, if, if you ask me what are the implications of a slowing China and the way that China is slowing down, I think exports, China is going to have to continue to prioritize exporting low-cost manufactured goods to Africa. Um, I, I did a, a, a quick um analysis of of the growth rates the compound annual growth rates of china's exports to to the whole world um and nine of the nine of the 15 fastest growing uh, export markets since 2009 have been in africa i mean so they're clearly growing in africa considerably and they're going to continue to need to do so and it's low-cost manufactured goods and 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 we know what the products are if manufacturing capacity is going to move to africa it's probably going to be in the in the the sub-sectors of products that they are producing and selling to africa that they're seeing fast growth because they'll probably want to move the capacity there uh, to service those markets and, and perhaps the regional markets but so far that's been a limp and the reality is export prioritizing exports to Africa is still a big deal. Um, so I think that exports will continue to grow in Africa next year. Imports from Africa, that's a slightly more tricky situation. Um, so we've seen fast growth this year, but largely on the back of a recovery in um, commodity prices. And I think that next year you'll probably see a significantly slowing uh, growth rate in uh, Chinese imports from Africa. Um, So I think trade is going to be dented and and like I said earlier um, when it comes to For years and years and years, you know if China's PMI number came out at 55 and people were expecting 54 all the commodity prices would rally including the commodity uh, Reliant currencies like the rand and all emerging market assets would benefit because everybody knew that, that China China consumes 40 odd percent of most raw materials, even though it accounts for 20 percent or less of the world's GDP. Now, that relationship has to normalize. Um, so what, what, what I speak to our clients about, who are mostly commodity exporters to Africa, and most of them concur, is they expect flat growth of demand from China for the next while. But where you see... China being supportive for prices is where the supply-side structural reform is impacting. So coal and steel, but if it stretches to glass and aluminium and cement and so on, then you might see some kind of price action that is favourable, even though their demand for those commodities isn't necessarily growing. So it's a complicated thing of of they might import less, but the terms of trade for, for those commodities might improve, depending on where they are in the sort of composite of... Uh, commodities but so
1: just just stepping back a little bit just to be able to kind of digest again all this very very meaty information that you've given us um, kind of looking forward it's, what you're telling us is that some of the clients and some of the banks that you deal with they're less interested now in investing in Africa and extending these loans trade is still a very very tricky issue tied to commodity prices and if the global economy does in fact uh, slow as we expect it next year. The U.S. economy is now slowing. China is slowing. Um, those are the two engines of growth. And if they, if, if they go down, everybody goes with them. Um, so commodity prices are likely to go down. Um, so we're looking at potentially a, a, a bumpy ride for Africa in 2019, in, in part led by the Chinese. And if the Chinese do start to pull back, that could have profound impact on, on what happens on the continent
2: well i think that that a month ago i was in south africa talking to clients and all of them said china will stimulate that was their 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 basically feeling and i said one i don't think that they're going to stimulate i think that the the market overstates the ability and willingness of the chinese authorities to stimulate again i think China understands that it cannot continue to do so and there's been a big credibility build-up uh, how China's chosen the policies it's chosen in the last two and a half years to work with de-risking the financial system and work towards deleveraging. Sure, there's a conversation domestically about should we pause that or should we slow that but reversing that is is impossible and it would really derail any credibility that the Chinese authorities have built up. Now, what that means and how I how I articulate that to my clients is I'm bearish on the economy in the next two years say but I'm bullish on the policymakers and the leadership and What that means is I mean that the policymakers in China understand what needs to be done and they're prioritizing the right things they understand that there are no easy policy options and it would be foolish to reverse course on de-risking the financial system and so on. Um, and I think that that anchors my view with how they engage with 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 Africa. Um, domestic attention is going to be around supporting the private sectors through. Uh, trying to get them access to funding to try and lower their business costs remember the private sector guys are the guys that exports a considerable amount Um, i think 70 percent of manufacturing is private owned those guys are exporting to the united states and to the the rest of the world Um, they're exposed to the trade war they are looking down the barrel of the gun of the trade war it's not the state-owned companies that build roads and bridges it's It's the increasingly important part of the economy, which is the private guys that are creating the jobs for all the university graduates, that are creating the high-value-added services jobs that are involved in the new economy, that are involved in robotics and artificial intelligence and so on. It's those companies that I think the SMEs account for 50% of China's taxes, 60% of China's GDP, 70% of technological innovation, you know, these are the guys that matter for the future for china so this made in china 2025 this this picking nascent global technologies and trying to become a global leader the essence of what the trade war is about which is about how does china support these players in these sectors that are going to be the growth drivers of tomorrow i mean essentially that's what the trade was about now those companies are, are the ones that matter most. And so they aren't the ones building roads, bridges, and ports. China's economy is going to have flat, fixed asset investments. So building roads and bridges, whether it – so growth in imports has to slow down. How China connects to Africa is changing. And so it's, it's – this is really, really important – and, and the upshot of the trade war and the slowing economy is that there's been a concerted effort domestically to create a better business environment for the private sector. Xi Jinping wrote a letter about a month ago to private businesses saying the Chinese Communist Party supports you, you're the backbone of the economy, the society. He, he then went south is sort of mirroring Deng Xiaoping's visit to go and talk and engage with private sector businesses. Now, this is a guy who we know believes that you want strong, large, monopoly SOEs in the upstream sector, but what he's clearly saying is he's saying that the future of China's economic activity has to be built on the back of the new economy and the smaller uh, SMEs. So it's clear to me that... that That's where China's interests are, and that's where its emphasis is going to be. And so they're going to do that, but the growth trajectory, therefore, has to slow inside China. So if you look at exports from China, so exports have held up relatively well, but they've all been front-loaded because buyers in America have been trying to buy as much as they can before the tariffs, the second round of tariffs, kick in in January. Industrial production in China is at the lowest it's been since 2015. The subsector of manufacturing is at the lowest it's been, I think, on record. PMI is at a 14-month low or a 15-month low. Retail sales are low, but they're they're being sort of supported by food prices. Inflation, particularly, so I've spoken a lot about supply-side structural reform and how cutting capacity is what's driving prices in in, in in the raw material world. PPI, which is producer price inflation, which is the prices at the factory gate, those are now falling, uh, I think they're at 2.7%, but they peaked at over 4% and they're coming down, down, down. Now, if you remember, 2015, 2016, they were negative. And that, that speaks to SOE profitability, their ability to pay back debt, and so on. And so... That's what triggered supply-side structure reform, which meant they're going to carve out capacity in steel and cement and so on. It's, it's to push prices back up, to return SOEs to profitability. So there's so much going on domestically. The point is that it's impossible for me to even think for a second that they are prioritizing Africa in a year where there's no FOCAC, there's no BRICS summit. You know they need to get on doing with what their domestic agenda and the problem for africa is that they are likely to be sidelined in the next year and news flow from china is going to be bad for emerging market assets at least for the first six months of the year so asset prices in emerging markets are going to struggle uh, that includes Rand, that includes you know the emerging market currencies the 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 fi- the, the rail the r- renminbi, the the, the, um, the ruble the rupee all of those currencies are going to struggle um, and it 's just the nature of the beast, um, like you say, uh, and at the very start of today 's discussion, you said you know information out of China used to sort of react the the South African market would react now. The South African market is a commodity-based currency. You know, if you mirror the VIX index, which is the Global Volatility Index and the RAND, they basically move together. The RAND is a proxy for emerging market risk. So if good news is coming out of the world economy, everybody piles into emerging markets and that supports the RAND. And when everything's panicked, everything funnels back to the dollar and the RAND gets killed. But it's a commodity currency, which also has a worse effect. And then there's a second profound, powerful player, which is that 25% of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is NASPERS, which owns 30% of, of Ten Cent. So the whole Johannesburg Stock Exchange works basically in an exact linear replication of whatever's happening to Tencent stocks. So, you know, the the point is, like, like you mentioned previously, You know, five years ago, 10 years ago, those influences were much smaller. Now they're omnipresent. China's influence in the global economy, in global asset prices, in interest rates, in sentiment, in how people perceive other emerging markets and so on is profoundly higher now than it ever was before. And so understanding what's happening in China. So the fact that China might break 6% next year, you know, what does that mean? What, what's driving it? Why is it happening? Those questions are incredibly important because you need to be able to understand what's happening in this economy and how it relates to the rest of the world. It's incredibly important, more so now yeah. than ever before.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, it does feel like it's going to be a bumpy ride, not just for China, but also for emerging markets. And one other factor to kind of take into account is that there's probably going to be an interest rate hike in the United States. And that always is a problem for emerging markets as money kind of migrates away from higher risk uh, markets like in Africa or South America back into the United States where interest rates are higher. So it's going to be very, very interesting, especially with the trade war. Jeremy Stevens is a Beijing-based economist for Standard Advisory China that is uh, part of the Standard Bank Group. And uh, obviously, as you can hear from our discussion today, one of the smartest guys out there when it comes to the China economy and understanding the linkages between what happens here domestically in China and all the different dimensions of the economic relationship in Beijing. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us. I want to also let people know that you produce this awesome newsletter. So if you you, you, you kind of want to get an economics class every week. Sign up for this newsletter. Where can people get the newsletter if they want to uh, to get on your list?
2: I, I, I mean, the easiest way is for them to email me directly, um, which is jeremy.stevens at standard sbg.com. Um, otherwise, I mean, of course, we, we've got a Standard Bank research portal. You can easily sign up for our stuff there um, or just, you know, Google me and there's uh, v- Virtually most of the things that come up are sort of bricks related stuff that I've done um, and you can contact me uh, that way.
1: Well, I absolutely recommend it. It is an awesome newsletter, and I read it religiously. It comes out most week. It's called the Inside China Newsletter. So if you really want to understand what's going on in China, this is for you. So that'll do it for this edition of the episode. Kobus will be back again next week. Uh, Hopefully we'll pull him out of his important meetings that he's with just long enough so we can do our year in review and our year preview show. It's one we do every year where we look at each of us picks the three best stories or most important stories of the year, and then we look ahead to what's coming in 2019. So he'll be there to join us. So for Kobus Venstaten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinski. Or Eric at EOLander and be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.